Welcome to the 37th reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 23, Section 13. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 13. Another impudent and malicious calumny against this doctrine is that it destroys all exhortations to a pious life. The great odium to which Augustine was at one time subjected on this head, he wiped away in his treatise, De Corruption et Gratia, to Valentinus, a perusal of which will easily satisfy the pious and docile. Here, however, I may touch on a few points which will, I hope, be sufficient for those who are honest and not contentious. We have already seen how plainly and audibly Paul preaches the doctrine of free election. Is he therefore cold in admonishing and exhorting? Let those good zealots compare his vehemence with theirs, and they will find that they are ice, while he is all fervor. And surely, every doubt on this subject should be removed by the principles which he lays down, that God hath not called us to uncleanness, that every one should possess his vessel in honor, that we are the workmanship of God, quote, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them, unquote. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 4 and 7, and Ephesians 2, verse 10. In one word, those who have any tolerable acquaintance with the writings of Paul will understand without a long demonstration how well he reconciles the two things which those men pretend to be contradictory to each other. Christ commands us to believe in him, and yet there is nothing false or contrary to this command in the statement which he afterwards makes. Quote, no man can come unto me except it were given him of my Father. Unquote. John 6, verse 65. Let preaching, then, have its free course that it may lead men to faith and dispose them to persevere with uninterrupted progress. Nor at the same time let there be any obstacle to the knowledge of predestination, so that those who obey may not plume themselves on anything of their own, but glory only in the Lord. It is not without cause our Savior says, quote, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Unquote. Matthew 13, verse 9. Therefore, while we exhort and preach, those who have ears willingly obey. In those, again, who have no ears is fulfilled what is written, quote, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, unquote. Isaiah 6, verse 9. Quote, but why, says Augustine, have some ears and others not, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Are we therefore to deny what is plain, because we cannot comprehend what is hid? Unquote. This is a faithful quotation from Augustine. But because his words will perhaps have more authority than mine, let us adduce the following passage from his treatise, De Bono Persevere. 
Quote, should some on hearing this turn to indolence and sloth, and leaving off all exertion rush headlong into lust, are we therefore to suppose that what has been said of the foreknowledge of God is not true? If God foreknew that they would be good, will they not be good, however great their present wickedness? And if God foreknew that they would be wicked, will they not be wicked, how great soever the goodness now seen in them? For reasons of this description must the truth which has been stated on the subject of divine foreknowledge be denied or not mentioned, and more especially when, if it is not stated, other errors will arise. Unquote. In the sixteenth chapter he says, quote, The reason for not mentioning the truth is one thing, the necessity for telling the truth is another. It were tedious to inquire into all the reasons for silence. One, however, is, lest those who understand not become worse, while we are desirous to make those who understand better informed. Now, such persons, when we say anything of this kind, do not indeed become better informed, but neither do they become worse. But when the truth is of such a nature that he who cannot comprehend it becomes worse by our telling it, and he who can comprehend it becomes worse by our not telling it, what think ye ought we to do? Are we not to tell the truth? that he who can comprehend may comprehend, rather than not tell it, and thereby not only prevent both from comprehending, but also make the more intelligent of the two to become worse, whereas if he heard and comprehended, others might learn through him. And we are unwilling to say what, on the testimony of Scripture, it is lawful to say. For we fear lest, when we speak, he who cannot comprehend may be offended. But we have no fear lest, while we are silent, he who can comprehend the truth be involved in falsehood. Unquote. In chapter 20th, glancing again at the same view, he more clearly confirms it. Quote, Wherefore, if the apostles and teachers of the church who came after them did both, if they discoursed piously of the eternal election of God, and at the same time kept believers under the discipline of a pious life, how can those men of our day, when shut up by the invincible force of truth, think they are right in saying that what is said of predestination, though it is true, must not be preached to the people? Nay, it ought indeed to be preached, that whoso hath ears to hear, may hear. And who hath ears, if he hath not received them from him who has promised to give them? Certainly let him who receives not reject. Let him who receives take and drink, drink and live. For as piety is to be preached, that God may be duly worshipped, so predestination also is to be preached, that he who hath ears to hear may, in regard to divine grace, glory not in himself, but in God." Unquote. Section 14. And yet, as that holy man had a singular desire to edify, he so regulates his method of teaching as carefully, and as far as in him lay, to avoid giving offense. For he reminds us that those things which are, truly should also be fitly spoken. Were anyone to address the people thus, if you do not believe, the reason is because God has already doomed you to destruction. He would not only encourage sloth, but also give countenance to wickedness. Were anyone to give utterance to the sentiment in the future tense, and say that those who hear will not believe because they are reprobates, it were imprecation rather than doctrine. Wherefore Augustine not undeservedly orders such, as senseless teachers are sinister and ill-omened prophets, to retire from the church. He indeed elsewhere truly contends that, quote, a man profits by correction only when he who causes those whom he pleases to profit without correction pities and assists. But why is it thus with some, and differently with others? Far be it from us to say that it belongs to the clay and not to the potter to decide. Unquote. He afterwards says, quote, When men by correction either come or return to the way of righteousness, 
Who is it that works salvation in their hearts, but he who gives the increase, whoever it be that plants and waters? When he is pleased to save, there is no free will in man to resist. Wherefore it cannot be doubted that the will of God, who hath done whatever he hath pleased in heaven and in earth, and who has even done things which are to be, cannot be resisted by the human will, or prevented from doing what he pleases, since with the very wills of men he does so." Unquote. Again, quote, "...when he would bring men to himself, does he bind them with corporeal fetters? He acts inwardly, inwardly holds, inwardly moves their hearts, and draws them by the wills which he has wrought in them." Unquote. What he immediately adds must not be omitted. Quote, because we know not who belongs to the number of the predestinated, or does not belong, our desire ought to be that all may be saved, and hence every person we meet we will desire to be with us a partaker of peace. But our peace will rest upon the sons of peace. Wherefore, on our part, let correction be used as a harsh yet salutary medicine for all, that they may neither perish nor destroy others. To God it will belong to make it available to those whom he has foreknown and predestinated." Unquote. Book 3, Chapter 24, Election Confirmed by the Calling of God. The reprobate bring upon themselves the righteous destruction to which they are doomed. There are seventeen sections. Section 1. But that the subject may be more fully illustrated, we must treat both of the calling of the elect and of the blinding and hardening of the ungodly. The former I have already in some measure discussed. Chapter 22, Sections 10 and 11, when refuting the error of those who think that the general terms in which the promises are made place the whole human race on a level. The special election which otherwise would remain hidden in God, he at length manifests by his calling. Quote, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Unquote. Moreover, quote, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called and whom he called, them he also justified, unquote, that he may one day glorify. Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Though the Lord, by electing his people, adopted them as his sons, we however see that they do not come into possession of this great good until they are called. But when called, the enjoyment of their election is in some measure communicated to them, for which reason the spirit which they receive is termed by Paul both the, quote, spirit of adoption, unquote, and the, quote, seal, unquote, and, quote, earnest, unquote, of the future inheritance, because by his testimony he confirms and seals the certainty of future adoption on their hearts. For although the preaching of the gospel springs from the fountain of election, yet being common to them with the reprobate, it would not be in itself a solid proof. God, however, teaches his elect effectually when he brings them to faith, as we formerly quoted from the words of our Savior. Quote, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Unquote. John 6, verse 46. Again, quote, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Unquote. John 17, verse 6. He says in another passage, quote, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Unquote. John 6, verse 44. This passage Augustine ably expounds in these words. Quote, if, as truth says, everyone who has learned cometh, then everyone who does not come has not learned. It does not therefore follow that he who can come does come, unless he have willed and done it. But everyone who hath learned of the Father not only can come, but also comes. The antecedents of possibility, the affection of will, and the effect of action being now present. Unquote. In another passage, he says still more clearly, quote, what means? 
Every one that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me, but just that there is no one who hears and learns of the Father that does not come to me. For if every one who has heard and learned comes, assuredly every one who does not come has neither heard nor learned of the Father. For if he had heard and learned, he would come. Far removed from carnal sense is this school in which the Father is heard and teaches us to come to the Son. Unquote. Shortly after, he says, Quote, This grace, which is secretly imparted to the hearts of men, is not received by any hard heart. For the reason for which it is given is that the hardness of the heart may first be taken away. Hence, when the Father is heard within, he takes away the stony heart and gives a heart of flesh. Thus he makes them sons of promise and vessels of mercy, which he has prepared for glory. Why then does he not teach all to come to Christ, but just because all whom he teaches he teaches in mercy, while those whom he teaches not he teaches not in judgment? For he pities whom he will, and hardens whom he will. Unquote. Those, therefore, whom God has chosen he adopts as sons, while he becomes to them a father. By calling, moreover, he admits them to his family and unites them to himself, that they may be one with him. When calling is thus added to election, the scripture plainly intimates that nothing is to be looked for in it but the free mercy of God. For if we ask whom it is he calls, and for what reason, he answers it is those whom he had chosen. When we come to election, mercy alone everywhere appears. And accordingly in this the saying of Paul is truly realized. Quote, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Unquote. Romans 9 verse 16 and that not, as is commonly understood by those who share the result between the grace of God and the will and agency of man. For their exposition is that the desire and endeavor of sinners are of no avail by themselves unless accompanied by the grace of God, but that when aided by his blessing they also do their part in procuring salvation. This cavil I prefer refuting in the words of Augustine rather than my own. Quote, if all that the apostle meant is that it is not alone of him that willeth or of him that runneth, Unless the Lord be present in mercy, we may retort and hold the converse, that it is not of mercy alone unless willing and running be present. Unquote. But if this is manifestly impious, let us have no doubt that the apostle attributes all to the mercy of the Lord, and leaves nothing to our wills or exertions. Such were the sentiments of that holy man. I set not the value of a straw on the subtlety to which they have recourse, viz. that Paul would not have spoken thus had there not been some will and effort on our part. For he considered not what might be in man, but seeing that certain persons ascribed a part of salvation to the industry of man, he simply condemned their error in the former clause, and then claimed the whole substance of salvation for the divine mercy. And what else do the prophets then perpetually proclaim the free calling of God? Section 2. Moreover, this is clearly demonstrated by the nature and dispensation of calling, which consists not merely of the preaching of the word, but also of the illumination of the Spirit. Who those are to whom God offers his word is explained by the prophet. Quote, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. Unquote. Isaiah 65 verse 1. And lest the Jews should think that that mercy applied only to the Gentiles, he calls to their remembrance whence it was he took their father Abraham when he condescended to be his friend. Isaiah 24 verse 3. Namely, from the midst of idolatry, in which he was plunged with all his people. When he first shines with the light of his word on the undeserving, he gives a sufficiently clear proof of his free goodness. 
Here, therefore, boundless goodness is displayed, but not so as to bring all to salvation, since a heavier judgment awaits the reprobate for rejecting the evidence of his love. God also, to display his own glory, withholds from them the effectual agency of his Spirit. Therefore, this inward calling is an infallible pledge of salvation. Hence the words of John, quote, Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us, unquote. 1 John 3, verse 24. And lest the flesh should glory in at least responding to him when he calls and spontaneously offers himself, he affirms that there would be no ears to hear, no eyes to see, did not he give them. And he acts not according to the gratitude of each, but according to his election. Of this you have a striking example in Luke, when the Jews and Gentiles in common heard the discourse of Paul and Barnabas. Though they were all instructed in the same word, it is said that, quote, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, unquote. Acts 13, verse 48. How can we deny that calling is gratuitous when election alone reigns in it even to its conclusion? Section 3. Two errors are here to be avoided. Some make man a fellow worker with God in such a sense that man's suffrage ratifies election, so that, according to them, the will of man is superior to the counsel of God. As if Scripture taught that only the power of being able to believe is given us, and not, rather, faith itself. Others, although they do not so much impair the grace of the Holy Spirit, yet induced by what means I know not, make election dependent on faith, as if it were doubtful and ineffectual till confirmed by faith. There can be no doubt, indeed, that in regard to us it is so confirmed. Moreover, we have already seen that the secret counsel of God which lay concealed is thus brought to light. By this nothing more being understood than that that which was unknown is proved, and as it were, sealed. But it is false to say that election is then only effectual after we have embraced the gospel, and that it thence derives its vigor. It is true that we must there look for its certainty, because if we attempt to penetrate to the secret ordination of God, we shall be engulfed in that profound abyss. But when the Lord hath manifested it to us, we must ascend higher in order that the effect may not bury the cause. For what can be more absurd and unbecoming than while Scripture teaches that we are illuminated as God has chosen us, our eyes should be so dazzled with the brightness of this light as to refuse to attend to election. Meanwhile, I deny not that, in order to be assured of our salvation, we must begin with the Word, and that our confidence ought to go no farther than the Word when we invoke God the Father. For some, to obtain more certainty of the counsel of God, which is nigh us in our mouth and in our hearts, Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, absurdly desire to fly above the clouds. We must therefore curb that temerity by the soberness of faith, and be satisfied to have God as the witness of his hidden grace in the external word, provided always that the channel in which the water flows, and out of which we may freely drink, does not prevent us from paying due honor to the fountain. Section 4. Therefore, as those are in error who make the power of election dependent on the faith by which we perceive that we are elected, so we shall follow the best order if, in seeking the certainty of our election, we cleave to those posterior signs which are sure attestations to it. Among the temptations with which Satan assaults believers, none is greater or more perilous than when disquieting them with doubts as to their election. He at the same time stimulates them with a depraved desire of inquiring after it out of the proper way. By inquiring out of the proper way, I mean when puny man endeavors to penetrate to the hidden recesses of the divine wisdom, and goes back even to the remotest eternity, in order that he may understand what final determination God has made with regard to him. In this way he plunges headlong into an immense abyss, involves himself in numberless inextricable snares, and buries himself in the thickest darkness. 
for it is right that the stupidity of the human mind should be punished with fearful destruction whenever it attempts to rise in its own strength to the height of divine wisdom. And this temptation is the more fatal, that it is the temptation to which, of all others, almost all of us are most prone, for there is scarcely a mind in which the thought does not sometimes rise, whence your salvation but from the election of God? But what proof have you of your election? When once this thought has taken possession of any individual, it keeps him perpetually miserable, subjects him to dire torment, or throws him into a state of complete stupor. I cannot wish a stronger proof of the depraved ideas which men of this description form of predestination than experience itself furnishes, since the mind cannot be infected by a more pestilential air than that which disturbs the conscience and deprives it of peace and tranquility in regard to God. Therefore, as we dread shipwreck, we must avoid this rock, which is fatal to everyone who strikes upon it. And though the discussion of predestination is regarded as a perilous sea, yet in sailing over it the navigation is calm and safe, nay, pleasant, provided we do not voluntarily court danger. For as a fatal abyss engulfs those who, to be assured of their election, pry into the eternal counsel of God without the word, yet those who investigate it rightly, and in the order in which it is exhibited in the word, reap from it rich fruits of consolation. Let our method of inquiry then be to begin with the calling of God and to end with it. Although there is nothing in this to prevent believers from feeling that the blessings which they daily receive from the hand of God originate in that secret adoption as they themselves express it in Isaiah. Quote, Thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Unquote. Isaiah 25 verse 1. For with this as a pledge, God is pleased to assure us of as much of his counsel as can be lawfully known. But lest any should think that testimony weak, let us consider what clearness and certainty it gives. On this subject there is an apposite passage in Bernard. After speaking of the reprobate, he says, quote, The purpose of God stands. The sentence of peace on those that fear him also stands, a sentence concealing their bad and recompensing their good qualities, so that in a wondrous manner not only their good but their bad qualities work together for good. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is completely sufficient for my justification to have him propitious against whom only I have sinned. Everything which he has decreed not to impute to me is as if it had never been. Unquote. A little after he says, quote, Oh, the place of true rest, a place which I consider not unworthy of the name of inner chamber, where God is seen, not as if disturbed with anger or distracted by care, but where his will is proved to be good and acceptable and perfect. That vision does not terrify but soothe does not excite restless curiosity, but calms it, does not fatigue, but tranquilizes the senses. Here is true rest. A tranquil God tranquilizes all things, and to see him at rest is to be at rest." Unquote. Section 5. First, if we seek for the paternal mercy and favor of God, we must turn our eyes to Christ, in whom alone the Father is well pleased. Matthew 3, verse 17. When we seek for salvation, life, and blessed immortality, to him also must we betake ourselves, since he alone is the fountain of life, and the anchor of salvation, and the heir of the kingdom of heaven. Then what is the end of election, but just that, being adopted as sons by the heavenly Father, we may by his favor obtain salvation and immortality? How much soever you may speculate and discuss, you will perceive that in its ultimate object it goes no farther. Hence, those whom God has adopted as sons, he is said to have elected, not in themselves, but in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 4. 
because he could love them only in him, and only as being previously made partakers with him, honor them with the inheritance of his kingdom. But if we are elected in him, we cannot find the certainty of our election in ourselves, and not even in God the Father if we look at him apart from the Son. Christ, then, is the mirror in which we ought, and in which, without deception, we may contemplate our election. For since it is into his body that the Father has decreed to engraft those whom from eternity he wished to be his, that he may regard as sons all whom he acknowledges to be his members, if we are in communion with Christ, we have proof sufficiently clear and strong that we are written in the book of life. Moreover, he admitted us to sure communion with himself, when by the preaching of the gospel he declared that he was given us by the Father to be ours with all his blessings. Romans 8, verse 32. We are said to be clothed with him, to be one with him, that we may live, because he himself lives. The doctrine is often repeated. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Unquote. John 3, verse 16. He who believes in him is said to have passed from death unto life. John 5, verse 24. In this sense, he calls himself the bread of life, of which if a man eat, he shall never die. John 6, verse 35. He, I say, was our witness, that all by whom he is received in faith will be regarded by our Heavenly Father as sons. If we long for more than to be regarded as sons of God and heirs, we must ascend above Christ. But if this is our final goal, how infatuated is it to seek out of him what we have already obtained in him, and can only find in him? Besides, as he is the eternal wisdom, the immutable truth, the determinate counsel of the Father, there is no room for fear that anything which he tells us will vary in the minutest degree from that will of the Father after which we inquire. Nay, rather, he faithfully discloses it to us as it was from the beginning and always will be. The practical influence of this doctrine ought also to be exhibited in our prayers. For though a belief of our election animates us to invoke God, yet when we frame our prayers, it were preposterous to obtrude it upon God or to stipulate it in this way. Quote, o Lord, if I am elected, hear me. Unquote. He would have us to rest satisfied with his promises, and not to inquire elsewhere whether or not he is disposed to hear us. We shall thus be disentangled from many snares if we know how to make a right use of what is rightly written. But let us not inconsiderately rest it to purposes different from that to which it ought to be confined. Section 6. Another confirmation tending to establish our confidence is that our election is connected with our calling. For those whom Christ enlightens with the knowledge of his name and admits into the bosom of his church, he is said to take under his guardianship and protection. All whom he thus receives are said to be committed and entrusted to him by the Father, that they may be kept unto life eternal. What would we have? Christ proclaims aloud that all whom the Father is pleased to save, he hath delivered into his protection. John 6, verses 37 through 39, and 17, verses 6 and 12. Therefore, if we would know whether God cares for our salvation, let us ask whether he has committed us to Christ, whom he has appointed to be the only Savior of all his people. Then, if we doubt whether we are received into the protection of Christ, he obviates the doubt when he spontaneously offers himself as our shepherd, and declares that we are of the number of his sheep if we hear his voice. John 10, verses 3 and 16. Let us therefore embrace Christ, who is kindly offered to us and comes forth to meet us. He will number us among his flock and keep us within his fold. But anxiety arises as to our future state. For as Paul teaches that those are called who were previously elected, so our Savior shows that many are called but few chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14.
Nay, even Paul himself dissuades us from security when he says, quote, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall, unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. And again, quote, Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not to thee, unquote. Romans 11, verses 20 and 21. And fine, we are sufficiently taught by experience itself that calling and faith are of little value without perseverance, which, however, is not the gift of all. But Christ has freed us from anxiety on this head, for the following promises undoubtedly have respect to the future. Quote, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Unquote. Again, quote, This is the will of him that sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day, unquote. John 6, verses 37 and 39. Again, quote, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand, unquote. John 10, verses 27 and 28. Again, when he declares, quote, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Unquote. Matthew 15, verse 13, he intimates conversely that those who have their root in God can never be deprived of their salvation. Agreeable to this are the words of John. Quote, if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Unquote. 1 John 2, verse 19. Hence also the magnificent triumph of Paul over life and death, things present and things to come. Romans 8, verse 38. This must be founded on the gift of perseverance. There is no doubt that he employs the sentiment as applicable to all the elect. Paul elsewhere says, quote, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, unquote. Philippians 1, verse 6. David also, when his faith threatened to fail, lent on this support, quote, forsake not the works of thy hands, unquote. Moreover, it cannot be doubted that since Christ prays for all the elect, he asks the same thing for them as he asks for Peter, viz. that their faith fail not. Luke 22, verse 32. Hence we infer that there is no danger of their falling away, since the Son of God, who asks that their piety may prove constant, never meets with a refusal. What then did our Savior intend to teach us by this prayer, but just to confide that whenever we are His, our eternal salvation is secure? Section 7 but it daily happens that those who seem to belong to Christ revolt from him and fall away. Nay, in the very passage where he declares that none of those whom the Father hath given to him have perished, he accepts the son of perdition. This indeed is true. But it is equally true that such persons never adhered to Christ with that heartfelt confidence by which I say that the certainty of our election is established. Quote, they went out from us, unquote, says John, quote, that they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, no doubt, have continued with us. Unquote. 1 John 2, verse 19. I deny not that they have signs of calling similar to those given to the elect. But I do not at all admit that they had a sure confirmation of election, which I desire believers to seek from the word of the gospel. Wherefore, let not examples of this kind move us away from tranquil confidence in the promise of the Lord, when he declares that all by whom he is received in true faith have been given him by the Father and that none of them, while he is their guardian and shepherd, will perish. John 3, verse 16, and 6, verse 39. Of Judas we shall shortly speak. See section 9. Paul does not dissuade Christians from security simply, but from careless carnal security, 
which is accompanied with pride, arrogance, and contempt of others, which extinguishes humility and reverence for God, and produces a forgetfulness of grace received. Romans 11, verse 20. For he is addressing the Gentiles and showing them that they ought not to exult proudly and cruelly over the Jews, in consequence of whose rejection they had been substituted in their stead. He also enjoins fear, not a fear under which they may waver in alarm, but a fear which, teaching us to receive the grace of God in humility, does not impair our confidence in it, as has elsewhere been said. We may add that he is not speaking to individuals, but to sects in general. See 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. The church having been divided into two parties and rivalship producing dissension, Paul reminds the Gentiles that their having been substituted in the place of a peculiar and holy people was a reason for modesty and fear. For there were many vainglorious persons among them, whose empty boasting it was expedient to repress. But we have elsewhere seen that our hope extends into the future, even beyond death, and that nothing is more contrary to its nature than to be in doubt as to our future destiny. Section 8. The Expression of Our Savior, quote, Many are called, but few are chosen, unquote, Matthew 22, verse 14, is also very improperly interpreted. See Book 3, Chapter 2, Sections 11 and 12. If we attend to what our former remarks ought to have made clear, these, that there are two species of calling. For there is a universal call by which God, through the external preaching of the Word, invites all men alike, even those for whom He designs the call to be a savor of death and the ground of a severe condemnation. Besides this, there is a special call which, for the most part, God bestows on believers only, when, by the internal illumination of the Spirit, He causes the Word preached to take deep root in their hearts. Sometimes, however, he communicates it also to those whom he enlightens only for a time, and whom afterwards, in just punishment for their ingratitude, he abandons and smites with greater blindness. Now, our Lord, seeing that the gospel was published far and wide, was despised by multitudes and justly valued by few, describes God under the character of a king, who, preparing a great feast, sends his servants all around to invite a great multitude that can only obtain the presence of a very few, because almost all allege causes of excuse. At length, in consequence of their refusal, he is obliged to send his servants out into the highways to invite everyone they meet. It is perfectly clear that thus far the parable is to be understood of external calling. He afterwards adds that God acts the part of a kind entertainer, who goes round his table and affably receives his guests. But still, if he finds anyone not adorned with the nuptial garment, he will by no means allow him to insult the festivity by his sordid dress. I admit that this branch of the parable is to be understood of those who, by profession of faith, enter the church, but are not at all invested with the sanctification of Christ. Such disgraces to his church, such cankers God will not always tolerate, but will cast them forth as their turpitude deserves. Few, then, out of the great number of called, are chosen. The calling, however, not being of that kind which enables believers to judge of their election. The former call is common to the wicked. The latter brings with it the spirit of regeneration, which is the earnest and seal of the future inheritance by which our hearts are sealed unto the day of the Lord. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In one word, while hypocrites pretend to piety... Just as if they were true worshippers of God, Christ declares that they will ultimately be ejected from the place which they improperly occupy, as it is said in the psalm, quote, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? 
he that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Unquote. Psalm 15 verses 1 and 2. Again, in another passage. Quote, this is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Unquote. Psalm 24 verse 6. And thus the Spirit exhorts believers to patience, and not to murmur because Ishmaelites are mingled with them in the church, since the mask will at length be torn off, and they will be ejected with disgrace. Section 9. The same account is to be given of the passage lately quoted in which Christ says that none is lost but the son of perdition. John 17 verse 12. The expression is not strictly proper, but it is by no means obscure. For Judas was not numbered among the sheep of Christ because he was one truly, but because he held a place among them. Then, in another passage where the Lord says that he was elected with the apostles, reference is made only to the office. Quote, Have I not chosen you twelve? Unquote, says he. Quote, and one of you is a devil. Unquote. John 6, verse 70. That is, he had chosen him to the office of apostle. But when he speaks of election to salvation, he altogether excludes him from the number of the elect. Quote, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. Unquote. John 13, verse 18. Should anyone confound the term election in the two passages, he will miserably entangle himself, whereas if he distinguish between them, nothing can be plainer. Gregory, therefore, is most grievously and perniciously in error when he says that we are conscious only of our calling but are uncertain of our election. And hence he exhorts all to fear and trembling, giving this as the reason that though we know what we are today, yet we know not what we are to be. But in that passage he clearly shows how he stumbled on that stone. By suspending election on the merit of works, he had too good a reason for dispiriting the minds of his readers, while at the same time, as he did not lead them away from themselves to confidence in the divine goodness, he was unable to confirm them. Hence believers may in some measure perceive the truth of what we said at the outset. These, predestination duly considered, does not shake faith, but rather affords the best confirmation of it. I deny not, however, that the Spirit sometimes accommodates his language to our feeble capacity, as when he says, quote, They shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel, unquote. Ezekiel 13, verse 9. As if God were beginning to write the names of those whom he counts among his people in the book of life, whereas we know, even on the testimony of Christ, that the names of the children of God were written in the book of life from the beginning. Luke 10, verse 20. The words simply indicate the abandonment of those who seem to have a chief place among the elect, as is said in the psalm. Quote, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Unquote. Psalm 69, verse 28. Section 10. For the elect are brought by calling into the fold of Christ, not from the very womb, nor all at the same time, but according as God sees it meet to dispense his grace. Before they are gathered to the supreme shepherd, they wander dispersed in a common desert, and in no respect differ from others except that by the special mercy of God they are kept from rushing to final destruction. Therefore, if you look to themselves, you will see the offspring of Adam giving token of the common corruption of the mass. That they proceed not to extreme and desperate impiety is not owing to any innate goodness in them, but because the eye of God watches for their safety, and his hand is stretched over them. Those who dream of some seed of election implanted in their hearts from their birth, by the agency of which they are ever inclined to piety and the fear of God, are not supported by the authority of Scripture, but refuted by experience. They indeed produce a few examples to prove that the elect before they were enlightened were not aliens from religion, 
for instance, that Paul led an unblemished life during his Pharisaism, that Cornelius was accepted for his prayers and alms, and so forth. Philippians 3, verse 5, and Acts 10, verse 2. The case of Paul we admit, but we hold that they are in error as to Cornelius, for it appears that he was already enlightened and regenerated, so that all which he wanted was a clear revelation of the gospel. But what are they to extract from these few examples? Is it that all the elect were always endued with the spirit of piety? Just as well might anyone, after pointing to the integrity of Aristides, Socrates, Xenocrates, Scipio, Curius, Camillus, and others, see Book 2, Chapter 4, Section 4, infer that all who are left in the blindness of idolatry are studious of virtue and holiness. Nay, even Scripture is plainly opposed to them in more passages than one. The description which Paul gives of the state of the Ephesians before regeneration shows not one grain of this seed. His words are, quote, You hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Unquote. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And again, quote, At that time ye were without Christ, unquote, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. Unquote. Ephesians 2, verse 12. Again, quote, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Unquote. Ephesians 5, verse 8. But perhaps they will insist that in the last passage reference is made to that ignorance of the true God in which they deny not that the elect lived before they were called. Though this is grossly inconsistent with the apostles' inference that they were no longer to lie or steal. Ephesians 4, verse 28. What answer will they give to other passages, such as that in which, after declaring to the Corinthians that, quote, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God, unquote, he immediately adds, quote, such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Again, he says to the Romans, quote, As ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then, and those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Unquote. Romans 6, verses 19 through 21. Section 11. Say then what seed of election germinated in those who, contaminated in various ways during their whole lives, indulged as with desperate wickedness in every kind of abomination. Had Paul meant to express this view, he ought to have shown how much they then owed to the kindness of God, by which they had been preserved from falling into such pollution. Thus, too, Peter ought to have exhorted his countrymen to gratitude for a perpetual seed of election. On the contrary, his admonition is, quote, The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. Unquote. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. What if we come to examples? Was there any germ of righteousness in Rahab the harlot before she believed? Joshua 2, verse 4. In Manasseh, when Jerusalem was died and almost deluged with the blood of the prophets, 2 Kings 23, verse 16. 
and the thief who only with his last breath thought of repentance. Luke 23, verse 42. Have done then with those arguments which curious men of themselves rashly devise without any authority from Scripture. But let us hold fast what Scripture states. These that, quote, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, unquote. Isaiah 53, verse 6. That is, to perdition. In this gulf of perdition, God leaves those whom he has determined one day to deliver until his own time arrive. He only preserves them from plunging into irremediable blasphemy. Section 12. As the Lord, by the efficacy of his calling, accomplishes towards his elect the salvation to which he had by his eternal counsel destined them, so he has judgments against the reprobate, by which he executes his counsel concerning them. Those, therefore, whom he has created for dishonor during life and destruction at death, that they may be vessels of wrath and examples of severity in bringing to their doom, he at one time deprives of the means of hearing his word, at another, by the preaching of it, blinds and stupefies them the more. The examples of the former case are innumerable, but let us select one of the most remarkable of all. Before the advent of Christ, about four thousand years passed away, during which he hid the light of saving doctrine from all nations. If anyone answered that he did not put them in possession of the great blessing, because he judged them unworthy, then their posterity will be in no respect more worthy. Of this, in addition to experience, Malachi is a sufficient witness. For while charging them with mixed unbelief and blasphemy, he yet declares that the Redeemer will come. Why then is he given to the latter rather than to the former? They will, in vain, torment themselves in seeking for a deeper cause than the secret and inscrutable counsel of God. And there is no occasion to fear, lest some disciple of Porphyry with impunity arraign the justice of God while we say nothing in its defense. For while we maintain that none perish without deserving it, and that it is owing to the free goodness of God that some are delivered, enough has been said for the display of his glory. There is not the least occasion for our cavilling. The supreme disposer then makes way for his own predestination, when depriving those whom he has reprobated of the communication of his light, he leaves them in blindness. Every day furnishes instances of the latter case, and many of them are set before us in Scripture. Among a hundred to whom the same discourse is delivered, twenty, perhaps, receive it with the prompt obedience of faith. The others set no value upon it, or deride, or spurn, or abominate it. If it is said that this diversity is owing to the malice and perversity of the latter, the answer is not satisfactory. For the same wickedness would possess the minds of the former, did not God in his goodness correct it. And hence we will always be entangled until we call in the aid of Paul's question, quote, Who maketh thee to differ? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, intimating that some excel others, not by their own virtue, but by the mere favor of God. Section 13. Why then, while bestowing grace on the one, does he pass by the other? In regard to the former, Luke gives the reason, because they, quote, were ordained to eternal life, unquote. Acts 13, verse 48. What then, shall we think of the latter, but that they are vessels of wrath unto dishonor? Wherefore, let us not decline to say with Augustine, Quote, God could change the will of the wicked into good, because he is omnipotent. Clearly he could. Why then does he not do it? Because he is unwilling. Why he is unwilling remains with himself. Unquote. We should not attempt to be wise above what is meet. And it is much better to take Augustine's explanation than to quibble with Chrysostom. Quote, that he draws him who is willing and stretching forth his hand. Unquote lest the difference should seem to lie in the judgment of God and not in the mere will of man. 
So far is it indeed from being placed in the mere will of man that we may add that even the pious and those who fear God need this special inspiration of the Spirit. Lydia, a seller of purple, feared God, and yet it was necessary that her heart should be opened, that she might attend to the doctrine of Paul and profit in it. Acts 16 verse 14 This was not said of one woman only, but to teach us that all progress in piety is the secret work of the Spirit. Nor can it be questioned that God sends his word to many whose blindness he is pleased to aggravate. For why does he order so many messages to be taken to Pharaoh? Was it because he hoped that he might be softened by the repetition? Nay, before he began, he both knew and had foretold the result. Quote, the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he will not let the people go. Unquote. Exodus 4, verse 21. So when he raises up Ezekiel, he forewarns him, Quote, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. Unquote. Quote, Be not afraid of their words. Unquote. Quote, Thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which hath eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. Unquote. Ezekiel 2, verses 3 and 6, and 12, verse 2. Thus he foretells to Jeremiah that the effect of his doctrine would be, quote, to root out and pull down and to destroy, unquote. Jeremiah 1, verse 10. But the prophecy of Isaiah presses still more closely, for he is thus commissioned by the Lord, quote, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed." Unquote. Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. Here he directs his voice to them, but it is that they may turn a deafer ear. He kindles a light, but it is that they may become more blind. He produces a doctrine, but it is that they may be more stupid. He employs a remedy but it is that they may not be cured. And John, referring to this prophecy, declares that the Jews could not believe the doctrine of Christ because this curse from God lay upon them. It is also incontrovertible that to those whom God is not pleased to illumine, he delivers his doctrine wrapped up in enigmas, so that they may not profit by it, but be given over to greater blindness. Hence our Savior declares that the parables in which he had spoken to the multitude, he expounded to the apostles only, quote, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given, unquote. Matthew 13, verse 11. What you will ask does our Lord mean by teaching those by whom he is careful not to be understood? Consider where the fault lies, and then cease to ask. How obscure soever the word may be, there is always sufficient light in it to convince the consciences of the ungodly. Section 14. It now remains to see why the Lord acts in the manner in which it is plain that he does. If the answer be given that it is because men deserve this by their impiety, wickedness, and ingratitude, it is indeed well and truly said. But still, because it does not yet appear what the cause of the difference is, why some are turned to obedience and others remain obdurate, we must, in discussing it, pass to the passage from Moses on which Paul has commented, namely, quote, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Unquote. Romans 9, verse 17. The refusal of the reprobate to obey the word of God when manifested to them will be properly ascribed to the malice and depravity of their hearts. 
provided it be at the same time added that they were adjudged to this depravity because they were raised up by the just but inscrutable judgment of God to show forth his glory by their condemnation. In like manner, when it is said of the sons of Eli that they would not listen to salutary admonitions, quote, because the Lord would slay them, unquote, 1 Samuel 2, verse 25, it is not denied that their stubbornness was the result of their own iniquity. But it is at the same time stated why they were left to their stubbornness when the Lord might have softened their hearts, namely, because his immutable decree had once for all doomed them to destruction. Hence the words of John, quote, Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Esaias the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, unquote. John 12, verses 37 and 38. For though he does not exculpate their perverseness, he is satisfied with the reason that the grace of God is insipid to men until the Holy Spirit gives it its savor. And Christ, in quoting the prophecy of Isaiah, quote, They shall be all taught of God, unquote. John 6, verse 45, designs only to show that the Jews were reprobates and aliens from the church, because they would not be taught, and gives no other reason than that the promise of God does not belong to them. Confirmatory of this are the words of Paul, quote, Christ crucified, unquote, was, quote, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, unquote, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. For after mentioning the usual result wherever the gospel is preached, that it exasperates some and is despised by others, he says that it is precious to them only who are called. A little before he had given them the name of believers, but he was unwilling to refuse the proper rank to divine grace which precedes faith, or rather he added the second term by way of correction that those who had embraced the gospel might ascribe the merit of their faith to the calling of God. Thus also he shortly after shows that they were elected by God, when the wicked hear these things, they complain that God abuses his inordinate power to make cruel sport with the miseries of his creatures. But let us, who know that all men are liable on so many grounds to the judgment of God, that they cannot answer for one in a thousand of their transgressions, Job 9 verse 3, confess that the reprobate suffer nothing which is not accordant with the most perfect justice. When unable clearly to ascertain the reason, let us not decline to be somewhat in ignorance in regard to the depths of the divine wisdom. Section 15. But since an objection is often founded on a few passages of Scripture in which God seems to deny that the wicked perish through his ordination, except insofar as they spontaneously bring death upon themselves in opposition to his warning, let us briefly explain these passages and demonstrate that they are not adverse to the above view. One of the passages adduced is, quote, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live, unquote? Ezekiel 18, verse 23. If we are to extend this to the whole human race, why are not the very many whose minds might be more easily bent to obey urged to repent, rather than those who by his invitations become daily more and more hardened? Our Lord declares that the preaching of the gospel and miracles would have produced more fruit among the people of Nineveh and Sodom than in Judea, Matthew 13, verse 23. How comes it then that if God would have all to be saved, he does not open a door of repentance for the wretched, who would more readily have received grace? Hence we may see that the passage is violently rested if the will of God which the prophet mentions is opposed to his eternal counsel, by which he separated the elect from the reprobate, 
Now, if the genuine meaning of the prophet is inquired into, it will be found that he only means to give the hope of pardon to them who repent. The sum is that God is undoubtedly ready to pardon whenever the sinner turns. Therefore, he does not will his death insofar as he wills repentance. But experience shows that this will, for the repentance of those whom he invites to himself, is not such as to make him touch all their hearts. Still, it cannot be said that he acts deceitfully. For though the external word only renders those who hear it and do not obey it inexcusable, it is still truly regarded as an evidence of the grace by which he reconciles men to himself. Let us therefore hold the doctrine of the prophet that God has no pleasure in the death of the sinner, that the godly may feel confident that whenever they repent, God is ready to pardon them, and that the wicked may feel that their guilt is doubled when they respond not to the great mercy and condescension of God. The mercy of God, therefore, will ever be ready to meet the penitent. But all the prophets and apostles and Ezekiel himself clearly tell us who they are to whom repentance is given. Section 16. The second passage adduced is that in which Paul says that, quote, God will have all men to be saved, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Though the reason here differs from the former, they have somewhat in common. I answer first that the mode in which God thus wills is plain from the context. For Paul connects two things, a will to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If by this they will have it to be fixed by the eternal counsel of God, that they are to receive the doctrine of salvation, what is meant by Moses in these words, quote, What nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them? Unquote. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. How comes it that many nations are deprived of that light of the gospel which others enjoy? How comes it that the pure knowledge of the doctrine of godliness has never reached some, and others have scarcely tasted some obscure rudiments of it? It will now be easy to extract the purport of Paul's statement. He had commanded Timothy that prayers should be regularly offered up in the church for kings and princes. But as it seems somewhat absurd that prayers should be offered up for a class of men who were almost hopeless, all of them being not only aliens from the body of Christ, but doing their utmost to overthrow his kingdom, he adds that it was acceptable to God, who will have all men to be saved. By this he assuredly means nothing more than that the way of salvation was not shut against any order of men, that on the contrary he had manifested his mercy in such a way that he would have none debarred from it. Other passages do not declare what God has in his secret judgment determined with regard to all, but declare that pardon is prepared for all sinners who only turn to seek after it. For if they persist in urging the words, Quote, God hath concluded all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all, unquote. Romans 11, verse 32. I will, on the contrary, urge what is elsewhere written. Quote, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased, unquote. Psalm 115, verse 3. We must therefore expound the passage so as to reconcile it with another. I, quote, will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, unquote. Exodus 33, verse 19. He who selects those whom he is to visit in mercy does not impart it to all. But since it clearly appears that he is there speaking not of individuals, but of orders of men, let us have done with a longer discussion. At the same time, we ought to observe that Paul does not assert what God does always, everywhere, and in all circumstances, but leaves it free to him to make kings and magistrates partakers of heavenly doctrine, though in their blindness they rage against it. A stronger objection seems to be founded on the passage in Peter. The Lord is, quote, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, unquote. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. 
but the solution of the difficulty is to be found in the second branch of the sentence. For his will that they should come to repentance cannot be used in any other sense than that which is uniformly employed. Conversion is undoubtedly in the hand of God. Whether he designs to convert all can be learned from himself when he promises that he will give some a heart of flesh and leave to others a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 It is true that if he were not disposed to receive those who implore his mercy, it could not have been said, quote, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Unquote. Zechariah 1 verse 3 But I hold that no man approaches God unless previously influenced from above. And if repentance were placed at the will of man, Paul would not say, quote, If God peradventure will give them repentance. Unquote. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25 Nay, did not God, at the very time when he is verbally exhorting all to repentance, influence the elect by the secret movement of his spirit? Jeremiah would not say, quote, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. Unquote. Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Section 17. But if it is so, you will say, little faith can be put in the gospel promises which, in testifying concerning the will of God, declare that he wills what is contrary to his inviolable decree. Not at all, for however universal the promises of salvation may be, there is no discrepancy between them and the predestination of the reprobate, provided we attend to their effect. We know that the promises are effectual only when we receive them in faith, but, on the contrary, when faith is made void, the promise is of no effect. If this is the nature of the promises, let us now see whether there be any inconsistency between the two things, viz. that God, by an eternal decree, fixed the number of those whom he is pleased to embrace and love, and on whom he is pleased to display his wrath, and that he offers salvation indiscriminately to all. I hold that they are perfectly consistent, for all that is meant by the promise is just that his mercy is offered to all who desire and implore it, and this none do save those whom he has enlightened. Moreover, he enlightens those whom he has predestinated to salvation. Thus the truth of the promises remains firm and unshaken, so that it cannot be said there is any disagreement between the eternal election of God and the testimony of his grace which he offers to believers. But why does he mention all men? Namely, that the consciences of the righteous may rest the more secure when they understand that there is no difference between sinners provided they have faith, and that the ungodly may not be able to allege that they have not an asylum to which they may betake themselves from the bondage of sin, while they ungratefully reject the offer which is made to them. Therefore, since by the gospel the mercy of God is offered to both, it is faith, in other words, the illumination of God which distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked the former feeling the efficacy of the gospel, the latter obtaining no benefit from it. Illumination itself has eternal election for its rule. Another passage quoted is the lamentation of our Savior. Quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. Unquote. Matthew 23, verse 37. But it gives them no support. I admit that here Christ speaks not only in the character of man, but upbraids them with having in every age rejected his grace. But this will of God of which we speak must be defined, for it is well known what exertions the Lord made to retain the people, and how perversely from the highest to the lowest they followed their own wayward desires and refused to be gathered together. But it does not follow that by the wickedness of men the counsel of God was frustrated. They object that nothing is less accordant with the nature of God than that he should have a double will. This I concede, provided they are sound interpreters. 
But why do they not attend to the many passages in which God clothes himself with human affections and descends beneath his proper majesty? He says, quote, I have spread out my hands all the way unto a rebellious people, unquote. Isaiah 65, verse 1, exerting himself early and late to bring them back. Were they to apply these qualities without regarding the figure, many unnecessary disputes would arise, which are quashed by the simple solution that what is human is here transferred to God. Indeed, the solution which we have given elsewhere, see Book 1, Chapter 18, Section 3, and Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 43, is amply sufficient, viz. that though to our apprehension the will of God is manifold, yet he does not in himself will opposites, but according to his manifold wisdom, so Paul styles it in Ephesians 3, verse 10, transcends our senses until such time as it shall be given us to know how he mysteriously wills what now seems to be adverse to his will. They also amuse themselves with the cavil that since God is the Father of all, it is unjust to discard anyone before he has by his misconduct merited such a punishment, as if the kindness of God did not extend even to dogs and swine. But if we confine our view to the human race, let them tell why God selected one people for himself and became their father, and why from that one people he plucked only a small number as if they were the flower. But those who thus charge God are so blinded by their love of evil speaking that they consider not that as God, quote, maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, unquote, Matthew 5, verse 45, so the inheritance is treasured up for a few to whom it shall one day be said, Quote, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, unquote, etc. Matthew 25, verse 34. They object, moreover, that God does not hate any of the things which he has made. This I concede, but it does not affect the doctrine which I maintain that the reprobate are hateful to God, and that with perfect justice, since those destitute of his spirit cannot produce anything that does not deserve cursing. They add that there is no distinction of Jew and Gentile, and that therefore the grace of God is held forth to all indiscriminately. True, provided they admit, as Paul declares, that God calls as well Jews as Gentiles according to his good pleasure without being restricted to any. This disposes of their gloss upon another passage. Quote, God hath concluded all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Unquote. Romans 11, verse 32. In other words, he wills that all who are saved should ascribe their salvation to his mercy, although the blessing of salvation is not common to all. Finally, after all that has been adduced on this side and on that, let it be our conclusion to feel overawed with Paul at the great depth, and if petulant tongues will still murmur, let us not be ashamed to join in his exclamation, quote, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Unquote. Romans 9, verse 20. Truly does Augustine maintain that it is perverse to measure divine by the standard of human justice. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb.com at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton AB Canada T6L3T5 
If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.